You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Healthcare in the U.S. is going through an era of groundbreaking innovation. On June 11th, the Washington Post Live hosted Transformers Health, featuring health innovators and experts to discuss the most innovative solutions to today's top health challenges. With the measles outbreak top of mind for health officials in the U.S., we gathered key thought leaders in health and medicine to brainstorm innovative solutions to curb what has been declared a measles emergency. Let's listen. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Lena Sun. I'm a health reporter at The Washington Post on the national staff. I'm delighted to welcome my guests here today. We're going to be talking about the measles outbreak in the United States and some innovative solutions to public health crises like this. So to my left is Dr. Oxidis Barbo, the New York City Health Commissioner. Next to her is Dr. Nancy Missonier. She is the director of the CDC's Immunization and Respiratory Diseases Center. And next to her is Dr. Peter Hotez, a dean and professor at the Baylor College of Medicine. You can join our discussion by tweeting to hashtag postlive. So let me start out by talking to you folks about where we are now Measles cases are at their highest level in 27 years. CDC's latest update shows there were more than 1,022 cases reported as of Monday. And before we talk about the innovative ways that you guys are going to address this problem, I'd like to ask the panelists to briefly talk about how did the U.S. get to this point? And maybe we'll start with Dr. Missonier first, and then Dr. Barbo, and then Dr. Hotez. Sure, so immunization coverage in the United States remains high. 94% of kids are protected from measles by the vaccine. But we live in a global society, and internationally, measles is spreading at an increased rate. Unvaccinated Americans traveling abroad get exposed to measles, and they bring it home with them. But in most cases, they bring it home to communities that have high vaccination coverage. And the health department rapidly responds, and we see maybe a case, maybe two. But this year, they brought it home to communities with low immunization coverage, and those communities were very susceptible to measles outbreaks. Most of the cases we've seen this year are associated with two outbreaks in New York City and New York State. While there is disease elsewhere in the United States, it is really those two large outbreaks that are driving the large numbers of cases this year. Dr. Barbo. So in New York City, we're currently up to 588 individuals that have been diagnosed with measles. And as Dr. Messonnier mentioned, our immunization rates across the city are very high. Our public school children have a 99% uh, vaccination rate. And what that translates into is we have more children in New York City vaccinated against measles than the entire population of Boston, of San Francisco. We have over a million children in our city. The issue is that, as Dr. Messonnier mentioned, we had an individual who brought in measles from abroad into a community where we had isolated pockets of schools with lower vaccination rates and a high number of uh, exemption rates for the measles. And so that then created the perfect storm for having to tackle one of the most contagious, if not the most contagious, virus on the face of the earth. Dr. Hotez? So, Lena, um, 
In 2017, I wrote an article saying that it's inevitable that measles is going to return uh, to the United States. So I think the 2019 measles epidemic in the U.S. was both predicted and predictable. And, and that has to do with the fact, from my perspective, uh, be, being in the state of Texas. I'm a vaccine scientist who develops vaccines for tropical diseases. I also have this interesting uh, family life. My uh, oldest daughter, Rachel, has autism and other developmental disabilities. And for years, I've been countering the, the major central tenet of the anti-vaccine movement, claiming that vaccines cause autism and explaining what autism is and how it's absolutely impossible that vaccines cause autism. The, um, what we saw in Texas was scary. Um, we saw the steep rise in the number of kids not getting vaccinated because of phony reasons, because the anti-vaccine lobby had become so dominant in the state of Texas, and we had 60,000 kids not getting their vaccines. So then we took the time to look to see, is this isolated in pockets in Texas, or is it nationally? And ultimately, we identified 15 urban areas where there's large numbers of kids not getting vaccinated. So even though nationally, as, as, as both of you point out, we're, we're doing great, there are these pockets where large numbers of kids are not being vaccinated. So we identified 15 urban areas, and now seven of them have, have measles in, in 2019. So that is the problem, that we, uh, the anti-vaccine lobby is very aggressive and very successful in a pyrrhic sort of way in, the, in those 15 or so urban areas. I want to ask Dr. Barbo about this because you have been quite outspoken about the situation in New York and calling out the anti-vaccine groups. Um, what specifically are they doing and how are those actions affecting immunization rates? So the way that I look at this is as New York City's doctor, it's my responsibility to protect the health and safety of our population. And when there is a threat, propagating false, dangerous information, we have a responsibility to counter it. So what has been happening in isolated pockets of our community is that um, these individuals have been targeting households with robocalls, with frightening information, false information about the measles vaccine. They have been distributing pamphlets. They have been holding rallies. And so we have been very vocal to say this information is not only wrong, it's dangerous and it's irresponsible in an outbreak for these individuals to be so callous and putting people's lives at risk. And so we have been very vocal um, encountering those messages. And one of the things I think that has helped us uh, in this endeavor is that not only have we as the health department and as the city been vocal, but we have had partners who have used our content to then have face-to-face -face conversations with families. Because at the end of the day, what we're most interested in is having families feel good about vaccinating their children and understanding the safety and the efficacy of vaccines. Because it's not only important to ensure that these children are vaccinated now, but that children from here on in continue to have high rates of vaccination. But this measles outbreak in New York City has gone on for now, what, eight months almost? Um, and it has been very difficult to get your arms around it. I know you've done a lot of work. Do you think there needs to be a more robust, innovative way to be more pro-vaccine and 
um, get that message out there, use the same tools that they're using, and if so, who should lead it? And I would like each one of you to answer that question. So I think we have been extremely aggressive in countering this outbreak, and we issued a public health emergency at the beginning of April, and when we look at the main numbers of new individuals diagnosed with measles as compared to April, we've cut that number in half. And so that is an indication, along with the fact that we have vaccinated over 50,000 people against measles, um, is also another indication that we are making headway. The one thing that I will say, and, and that I said earlier today, is that in terms of countering this, we have relied heavily on community partners that are from the affected community more than we have in the past because I think that we are countering not only the anti-vaccine messages but fears that these communities may have about government involvement. And what we are focused on is ensuring that we provide the most accurate information and then we're agnostic about who the messenger is as long as it lands the way that it's intended. Dr. Masoni. Yeah. I think one lesson that we learn in New York City, but we learn repeatedly, is that when myths and misinformation take hold, it's hard to stamp them out. It becomes deep-rooted in people's beliefs and it's hard to counter it. So what we, of course, want to do is get there first and get the right information to people to counter the myths before they start believing in them. There is a way in which innovation can help us to identify communities at risk and can help us be more tactical in how we use social media. So innovation would be great. But in the end, as I think you've heard, it is really about those day-to-day -day conversations, sitting down with the parent and having those conversations. Nationally, we know that despite all the questions parents have about vaccines, and I think it's natural in today's society with so much information available that parents would have questions, but parents still trust their own healthcare provider most to help them make healthcare decisions. And just like in New York, in any community that we work with, in many cases, the most effective communicator to a parent is somebody who is from the same community who already has built a trusting relationship because they're part of the community, they're a public health, local public health authority, or they're their healthcare provider. So those local conversations, answering those questions, being able to, to um, provide science to counter the myths, really has to take place in front of a parent, can't be just innovated. And I think um, that speaks to maybe your larger question, what do we need to do nationally? National action is great. I think this measles outbreak this year has really prompted a national conversation and lots of visibility in the issues, and we should continue to have that conversation. But in the end, it really is about local action and us empowering our local and state health departments and our clinical partners, professional organizations, to have those conversations with parents. There's really no substitute for that. I certainly agree with those remarks, but I would take it a step further. Uh, and, and I've been recommending a three-part solution to solving this problem and to, and to prevent future measles epidemics from happening in the U.S. The first is the recognition that the anti-vaccine movement has become a media empire. Um, the estimates are there are now 500 misinformation websites out there, anti-vaccine misinformation websites, all ramped up on Facebook and other forms of social media. The Amazon site is basically an anti-vaccine site now. Um, 
My book, which I wrote called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism, the good news, that's probably the highest ranked pro-vaccine book on Amazon. The bad news is overall it's ranked number 20 at number 20 because there's 19 phony anti-vaccine books actively promoted. We need to figure out how to dismantle the media empire. The second piece to that is uh, they've now acquired a political arm. So in multiple states, like in Texas, uh, like in Oklahoma, like in the Pacific Northwest, there are political action committees that are raising money to lobby state legislatures to make it harder and harder to vaccinate our kids and easier and easier to exempt out. And that's why we've had so many problems nationally. So we've got to dismantle both the media arm and the political arm. And the third is we need to build a more robust system of vaccine advocacy in this country. Um, but if you just do that alone, it's not going to counteract the dominance that the anti-vaccine movement now has on the Internet and through their political action committees. So then following up on that, one has to assume, unfortunately, that this is not going to be the end of measles outbreaks in the United States. And before the next one happens or to prevent the next one, do we need to have some more innovation in the legal approach by public health authorities and pull out some of those other tools from the toolbox that New York City has used, or are we that too close to government mandate? Do you want me to go first? Or you yeah, you can go first. Um, so I think that the tools that we have in New York City have demonstrated that um, they are making a difference. And our response, I think, is characterized by leveraging those public health hammers, if you will, along with a strong social media presence, countering messages, and then good old-fashioned public health. One of the things that we are just starting to do is we are partnering with the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We're putting them together with the Visiting Nurses Association, and we're offering people in-home vaccinations. You know, when I was free? talking... Free? Is it free? the health department will pay for it. So it's free to the individuals, but we'll pay for it. And so what I was telling my staff is, you know, I never thought that in my public health career we would be giving immunizations on the down low, right? And so, but whatever it takes, whatever innovation, it takes. Innovation, right? Exactly. That's innovation. And so it's not just about the high tech, it's about the low tech as well and working with communities. Would you like to weigh in, Dr. Massonier? What I would say is that, um, Every outbreak that's going on right now in the United States and every outbreak that went on last year and every outbreak that's going to happen next year is actually different. And it's really hard to have cookie-cutter solutions, even in New York City and New York State. While there are some similarities to the outbreaks, there are actually lots of differences because the local contexts are different. So CDC's role is to work with the local and state health departments to empower them, to provide them data, but it would be, I think, incorrect to assume that the exact same things that work in one location would work in another. We do take lessons from one to the other, and we continue to build the evidence and the data um, so that you know, next year we'll be better equipped, our tools will be sharper. We have developed a toolbox to help our local and state health partners as well as the clinicians. But one important thing for me is this isn't just about preventing this year's measles outbreaks. It's important to stop these outbreaks. It's hugely important to stop these outbreaks. But you have to take a long-range view, and our long-range goal 
is to make sure that the public maintains, and if they've lost it, to reestablish their trust in the U.S. immunization program. That's really important for the long run, because for me, it's not just about getting them the measles vaccine. It's getting them all the childhood vaccines so that they can prevent 14 childhood vaccine-preventable diseases. So just to follow up on that, though, you know, they are very effective because they use these heartbreaking emotional testimonials, right? And people, people see those and they listen to those. Why doesn't the public health community do more of that same strategy and tactic and make some of those? And, you know, when we had the anti-smoking campaign, remember those, that campaign was very effective and it came from the top and it came from all sectors of society. You want to talk about your experience? Well, you know, I, I absolutely agree. And that's why I felt compelled to speak out about why vaccines don't cause autism. Here I am a vaccine scientist and a pediatrician. I'm also the parent of an adult daughter with autism. If I'm not going to speak up about it, who will? Uh, and and uh, that has met with some success, being able to tell that personal story. But, you know, what's really interesting about the New York epidemic is that's the one we didn't predict. So we predicted seven measles outbreaks in the U.S. just by looking at declines in vaccine coverage locally. The one we totally missed was what happened in New York, and I think we know why. Um, because we never counted on deliberate predatory behavior by the ringleaders of the anti-vaccine movement. Um, you know, you, Lena, you were the first to report uh, in Minnesota how leaders of the anti-vaccine movement went in and targeted the Somali immigrant community in 2015, 2016, 2017, and that, you know, told, told them the phony story about claiming vaccines cause autism, got vaccine coverage to drop from 90% to 40%, and guess what, there was a measles epidemic. The same, I think the similar set of forces are happening in New York. The phony documents, uh, the, the robocalls, the phony teleconferences, the, um, uh, uh, town hall meetings. Um, at what point do we say that this isn't right, that we can't allow leaders of the anti-vaccine movement to basically perpetrate purposeful fraud, which has now resulted in 40 Jewish kids in the hospital, including 12 in ICUs. Actually, I don't know if they're all kids, uh, but um, 12 people in the ICU because of this. So this is serious stuff, and we have to figure out a way how to counteract it. Maybe I, if I could just yes, add. Yes, um, You know, I, I think we have to understand that how people get their information has changed and it's going to keep changing. And as a parent myself, I can tell you that I'm inundated with health information and it's difficult to sort through it all. Um, it is true that the um, folks that are strongly opposed to vaccine have been very tactical in how they use social media to get their messages across. However, would also say that there are promising developments in that space with multiple of the social media companies wanting to work now with public health and the medical community to try to make sure that the scientifically accurate information comes first. I do agree, though, that it is difficult when there is anecdote and science. It's difficult to counteract the anecdotes with science. Um, and our strategy, I think, needs to be to make sure that parents have access always to scientifically credible information so that when they hear stories that really tug at their heartstrings but they have a reason to think that doesn't sound exactly right they know that there's a place that they can go for scientifically credible information and that they continue to trust their healthcare providers and the public health leaders to make sure they're getting accurate information 
So I don't think it's a matter exactly of quid pro quo, although I admire people who are out there giving their personal stories. But I do think it's about ensuring credible scientific information um, in any format that people want to get access to it. So we have a Twitter question. I will just ask maybe Dr. Massonier to answer it very quickly. Um, there are, are there any ill effects at all from vaccines? This person would like to know. Yeah. Um, vaccines are very safe and incredibly well studied. And it's because vaccines are studied not just before they're licensed, but also really in perpetuity that I can say with confidence that the U.S. vaccines are very safe. Um, we have a, a, a myriad of ways that we look at vaccines, study them, but we also have oversight committees that look at our data to make sure that what we're doing is credible. That's true for the CDC, it's true for FDA, it's true for the World Health Organization. I have kids myself and they're vaccinated. I certainly wouldn't vaccinate them unless I was sure that the vaccines that they're getting are very safe and very effective. The best way to prevent measles is through the measles vaccine. Well, I think I'm going to wrap up here because I think we're running out of time. I'm looking at the time. And I want to thank all of you for joining today, Dr. Oxiris Barbo, Nancy Massonier, and Peter Hotez. Um, if you'd like to watch any of the interviews from today, including selected highlights, head over to WashingtonPostLive.com, and you'll be able to get all of them. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you for coming. Thank you, thank you for joining. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.